We are gonna study God's word together, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Psalms. Psalm 141 is the passage that we're studying together this morning. We're in a Psalm series for most of the summer, and this is the third Psalm that we've been studying together in this series. Psalm 141 is where we're gonna go. We're gonna look at what it means to endure what it means to persevere in the faith. And Psalm 141, which we'll read in just a moment, is a, is a compelling illustration of perseverance, of endurance. This psalm is filled with evidence of God's preserving grace on his people. This is what it sounds like when God holds, carries, preserves our faith in the midst of trials. That's what's happening in this passage. You can hear the sound of that underneath the words and the verbiage of the passage. I remember watching a movie several years ago called The Fugitive, and Harrison Ford is in it, and, and um, at one point, he's a suspect, and some, he's been framed for a crime that he didn't commit, and, and so he's on the run, he's trying to find who really did it, but the cops think that he's actually the bad guy, and he, he makes a phone call, and they get, they're trying to track him and find him, he's on the run, right? And, and the only thing that they have is this recording of his voice, a voice message that he left on someone's machine, and so, and he's leaving this voicemail from a telephone booth in Chicago, and they don't know that he's in a telephone booth in Chicago, all they know is they're, what they're hearing on this recording, and then they... They isolate the background noise, right? So they, they mute sort of his words that are on the, on the message and they listen to what's behind it and they hear the L train in Chicago. They hear the, the sound of the boarding call to get onto the elevated transit system in Chicago and it narrows down the field. Now they know where to go and they're on the move, right? And in a way, that's what's happening in Psalm 141. And often that's what's happening all throughout God's word. Be behind the sound of the voice that we're hearing, there's evidence of something more telling. There's evidence of something deeper. Underneath David's words in Psalm 141, we hear something else. It's not just the cries of the psalmist, but it's the preserving grace of God. You can hear it underneath his prayers. David is afflicted. There's every evidence of that. But he is not alone. And there's, there's evidence of that as well. Distant, this faint sound behind the cries of the psalmist is the sound of God carrying his people. And so I hope we'll hear that as we read through this psalm. Psalm 141, I'm gonna start in verse one. Lord, I call on you. Hurry to help me. Listen to my voice when I call on you. May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. Lord, set up a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. Do not let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with men who commit sin. Do not let me feast on their delicacies. Let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Even now my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked when their rulers will be thrown off the sides of a cliff. The people will listen to my words for they are pleasing. As when one plows and breaks up the soil, turning up rocks so our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes look to you, Lord, my Lord. I seek refuge in you. Do not let me die. 
Protect me from the trap they have set for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. This is God's word to us. You think about your own life experience as a person of faith. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, your faith ever feels shaky? I'm not talking about I don't feel like I'm on my spiritual A-game shaky. I'm talking about verse eight, I seek refuge in you, do not let me die shaky. That's possible for believers. This is a believer praying. This is in God's word, right? You ever seen someone, you think about this, for, for other people's lives around us that we know, you ever seen someone who starts out the, the journey of faith and they seem to have so much gusto and so much just giddy up and then they leave off. They, they don't finish, they quit, they turn around and turn away from Christ. I wonder how many have seen that, maybe even felt the, the unsettling feeling of seeing someone that you know who seemed to have such strong faith in Christ and then they don't, right? And maybe it's not, well maybe it is, maybe it's dramatic, maybe it's just that I deny the faith, from now on I am a card-carrying skeptic or atheist, maybe it's dramatic, but maybe, and oftentimes it's less dramatic, maybe they don't deny Christ and hold that kind of atheistic card or ID, maybe it's more like their, their faith in Christ and their treasuring of Christ just began to dim. They're walking through life and at some point you saw a person who wanted more than anything to know him, to follow him, to obey his word, to submit to God's word and then something happened and it might not have even been a bad something, it might have been a relatively good something, maybe just something went well in their lives or success came their way in a business venture, so on and so forth and the things of God started to fade in terms of their own desires and values, their favorite issues to talk about become less and less what God is doing in the world and in the city and in my life and it becomes more about what I'm doing in the world and what I'm doing in the city and in my life and it's sometimes how faith begins to fade and slip away. Look, it doesn't matter, I know we, we know this but it bears repeating, it doesn't matter how fast we started running if we don't cross the tape at the finish line. We're called to perseverance. This word rings out in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 36. After all these warnings, it says this, for you need endurance. What an understatement. You need endurance so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what was promised for yet in a little while the coming one will come and not delay. These are heavy words. But my righteous one will live by faith and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Friends, Psalm 141 is a song for those who want to finish well. And I hope that describes every person in this room. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope that is on the short list of things you want the most in life. I want to finish well. I want to persevere in the faith. And these are three things that believers say who want to finish well. These are things that demonstrate that we're looking to God for strength that we don't possess in and of ourselves. Here's the first. Prayer number one, hurry to help me. It's just lifted straight out of the first verse. Lord, I call on you, hurry to help me. We don't know exactly what's in the background 
of this psalm. We know from the ascription there that it says it's a psalm of David, so we know who wrote it. It's clear that David has enemies. You can see that in verse five. Look at the end of verse five. Even now, my prayer is against the evil acts of the wicked. Skip down to verse nine. Protect me from the trap they've set for me and from the snares of evildoers. Verse 10, let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. So there's clearly, there's some opponents, some who are after him. Some suggest that maybe the background to this is when David's son Absalom rose up to overthrow his kingdom and David had to flee from Jerusalem and living for a time in caves and as a fugitive in his own kingdom. Some think that that might be the background here. Whatever the case is, David's first instinct when he's in this kind of trouble, serious trouble, his first instinct is to what? To pray. He's not reaching for his sword. He's calling out to God, God, please hurry and help me. This is in your notes. God is not put off by your desperation. And when we read the Psalms, we don't just learn what to pray, we learn something of the how, and there is a desperation that permeates so much of the Psalms. The NASB and the ESV translate those words in the very first verse, hasten to me, hasten to me, right? This is a small thing, but my, my only beef that I have with that translation is no one says that, right? right? When's the last time you said, you know, hey, hasten, hasten, you know, the movie's about to start, or, or hasten, kids, we're gonna be late for school. Nobody has said that since, like, guys wore tights, like, in the 1600s. No one says, hasten, call the police. No, nobody says that, right? What words do we say here and now in 2018, what words did we say when we need somebody to throw it in gear? Hurry. (laughs) That's why I love this translation. It just brings it all the way into the present. Hurry up. I need you five minutes ago. I am dying here. Please get here fast. Right? You stop there for a second and just realize the words that are being spoken here. This is an imperative. And, And it's directed at God. Hurry to help me. If you have a certain view of God, you expect, you're ducking at this point. You expect lightning bolts are gonna be hurled down at a moment like this. You don't expect for God to include it in his top 150 favorite songs in the history of the world. But that's where it is. It's in God's top 150 list and it includes this, I need you now, come now, (laughs) please help me, right? You come over to the New Testament, you see similar sounds or Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 18. He tells a story about a widow who's seeking justice and she is not taking no for an answer. She is pounding and rapping on the door and she's saying, give me justice against my adversary. And she won't stop. She's desperate. And in verse one in Luke chapter 18, we're told the meaning of the parable. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect, so here's the goal of that story, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart or not give up, keep knocking on the door, right? This wasn't Jesus telling his disciples how not to pray, it was him saying, watch and learn. Look at this woman pounding on the door, not taking no for an answer. Jesus is saying, pray like that. 
Apply this to your own life. Pray and don't lose heart. Don't give up. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. And Psalm 141 is an Old Testament application of that New Testament parable. David is pounding on the door of heaven and he's saying, God, I need you now. I need you five minutes ago. I need you desperately. Get here. Get here fast. Hurry to help me. That is... That is one of the demonstrations that you're still running the race of faith. It's almost a left-handed demonstration that we are still looking up and out. We're saying, I don't, I don't have the resources for this. Help. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is why I sometimes push back against calling our devotional moments quiet times because sometimes in the Psalms they are decidedly not quiet they are especially loud those words in verse 1 I call upon you that word call means to cry aloud it's sometimes translated to roar it's sometimes translated to preach David isn't praying in Psalm 141 with his inside voice this is not him praying in the library you know, the cubicle next to you, sort of whispering prayers that he'll pass the exam. This is him desperate, crying out, making some noise. There, look, there is an emotional range in the Psalms that I find encouraging. I hope you find it encouraging. Sometimes the psalmist is still. He quiets his soul before God, Psalm 46. And, and he's still and he knows that he is God. He's thinking about that truth of God's sovereignty in silence. Other times he's rapping on the door. He's saying, I'm dying in here. Hurry and get here fast. There is an intensity in the psalms that I think rebukes our, our, our sort of stoic emotionally detached ways of conversing with God, of approaching God. It, it rebukes our sort of easygoing, laissez-faire attitude toward injustice in the world and evil and sin in our own hearts and brokenness in our relationships. And the Psalms say, lift up your voice and go get it. Call out. Cry out to him. Far from, this is in your notes, far from implying that God is a vending machine, our desperate praying says that he is the source of our hope and help. That's the subtext underneath our crying out to God. Look at what David says in verse two. May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as an evening offering. This is an act of worship. It honors God when we ask him for help, when we look to him for grace and strength. That, friends, that's the sound of feet pounding on the race of faith. It sounds that way. Desperate prayer is a demonstration of the perseverance of faith. Number one, hurry to help me. Prayer number two, don't let my heart turn to evil. Don't let my heart turn to evil. Look, here's the thing. In these verses from verse three to seven, you're seeing David's enemies aren't just outside enemies, out there enemies. There is a save me from them emphasis in verse six through 10, but there is a save me from myself emphasis in verse three through five. And that's noteworthy in where he begins. Look at verse three. Lord, set a guard for my mouth. 
Keep watch at the door of my lips. This is in your notes. One of the signs of perseverance in faith is that we're fighting for holiness in our speech. We're fighting for holiness in the way that we talk. Again, looking down to verse three. Set a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. You think about things that are said in so many other places in the Bible. One, there's a huge theme of our speech and righteous speech shot through the book of Proverbs. You come over into the New Testament, you have passages like Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk, not just a little Not traces of corrupting talk. I mean, everybody does it a little bit. No, let none of it, no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But instead of that, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Look, a holy mouth in God's word isn't just one that that holds back from saying things that blow people up. It's not just, hey, I didn't say something destructive. It's it's not merely a mouth devoid of gossip or profanity. It's speech that positively builds others up. It makes them stronger. It points them to Christ. That's speech that is healthy and holy. It builds up, it strengthens, it fits the occasion, it gives grace. Just a quick word about social media. Because we need this. We need God's word to speak into context that didn't even exist centuries and centuries ago. So social media is a greenhouse for things that the Bible condemns. Quarreling, tail-bearing, hasty speech. You think about Facebook and Twitter reward those things. Facebook and Twitter, they're, they're, they're encouraging you to publish Publish that immediate thought, that immediate reflection on something. Centuries ago, Charles Spurgeon said wisely, the easiest work in the world is to find fault. Well, we can do, I can do that, the snap of my fingers and look at something, instantly point at something wrong, start poking holes. That is so easy. Right, and Facebook, it rewards that. Proverbs talk about warning against being a quarrelsome person or running with a quarrelsome person. So, for example, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day. You're, you're in a bad mood. Basically, everything is going wrong, right? Facebook doesn't say, you know, today's probably not a day to post something. You know, today's a day. Like, why don't you just ratchet it down? Restraint is the path of wisdom. Today, just you don't, don't post anything. No, Facebook hands you a mic and says, you're live. Talk to us, talk to us about your feelings and then it attaches a thumbs up so everybody else can affirm your cranky attitude, right? That's that's what social media so often ends up doing functionally in our lives. And what we need is in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we need to hear God's word saying, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whether you post or tweet or share, do all to the glory of God. God lays claim to every aspect of our lives, everything that we do and say and publish, everything that comes out of us. So so by all means, read helpful books that speak to this from a biblical perspective. War of Words by Paul David Tripp, excellent book. 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You by Tony Reinke, excellent book. They're filled with biblical reminders of this fact that God has an agenda for your speech. That's not just your thing. He... He wants to weigh in on that. He wants to tell us his agenda for our speech. Just because it's authentic doesn't mean it's righteous. Right? There's a kind of worldly authenticity, a sort of raw 
honesty, but when you look at it on closer inspection, that raw honesty is a lot more raw and a lot more honest and candid about other people's sins and blind spots than my own. And that's not incidental. That's something we need to look at. God's word speaks to this, right? Speaking of worldliness, you think about how much of our worldliness is owing to the fact that we're not vigilant in our faith. We're not careful to live for the honor of Christ. You you think about, you watch somebody fall into a pool, right? Falling into a pool, and then you watch someone dive into a pool. There are certain things they have in common. They're both wet when it's over, right? There was a splash when they went in, so I think the common point's probably in there. But their body language told you the story that one didn't want to go in, they're doing this, and the other was doing this, right? So there's two different postures that tell you about intent. Sometimes our stumbling isn't so much stumbling as it's diving. We're jumping straight into it with intent. Look at verse 4. Do not let my heart turn to any evil thing or perform Wicked acts with men who commit sin. Do not let me. What a sweet prayer. Don't let me feast on their delicacies. Look, this eating of their delicacies in verse four, it's a metaphor for enjoying what the world enjoys apart from God, defining the good life the way that the world defines the good life and going after that. And David is saying, as I live in this world, don't let it get on me. Right? We walk through this world with sinful hearts, and so it's almost like we're walking through the world with Velcro, and things just start sticking to us. And David's saying, just get this off of me. Just keep, keep me free, keep me clean of the things of this world that would easily stick to me. Don't let it get on me. Bottom line of this prayer is, I don't trust myself. <laughs> David doesn't trust David. It's a question for us to think about how much of our stumbling is owing to self-trust. How much of our stumbling is owing to self-trust? The the proof that David doesn't think himself above temptation is he invites friends to speak truth into his life, uncomfortable truth into his life. Look at verse five. Let the righteous one strike me. Bring it. It's an act of faithful love, he says. Let him rebuke me. It's oil on my head. Let me not Refuse it. Do we receive correction well, graciously? Do we take it home with us and think and prayerfully consider how we might change, where there might be truth in what was shared? The Christian life begins, you think about it, begins with the grace of teachability. That's how it starts, right? We call that repentance, Repentance is shorthand for saying, God, you've been right and I've been wrong all along. Repentance says, God, when there's a conflict between what you say and what I say, you're right every time. Just calling it in advance. When we differ, you're right. That's how the Christian life begins. Is there any characteristic that's more important than a teachable spirit? If, if, I am an, if I am given to anger, if that's my darling sin, as the Puritans used to say, that's, that's the one that gets me every time. If I am an angry man, but I'm teachable, there's hope for change, right? But if I'm unteachable, whatever other things are out of sorts in my life won't change because the only thing I'll let you say to me is, Matt, keep being awesome. I'm not, I'm not letting grace in the front door. I'm not saying, I wanna change. Hey, help me. I know you care about me. Help me. I'm tuning out anything that 
doesn't speak about my virtues. That, that's why Jesus, some of his strongest teaching was against pride and the unteachable. Friend, are you, ask ourselves this question, are you rebukable? Do you define friendship based on whether somebody affirms and agrees with you? Or can your friends get on your case, on your one yard line? Can they lovingly correct you? It's an evidence of God's grace and perseverance. Look at verse five. Let the righteous one strike me. It's an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. A a gracious host in the ancient world would anoint the guest as a courtesy. That's why you have, for example, in Psalm 23, it talks about how God prepares a table and anoints my head with oil. So you're traveling through the heat in Palestine and it's harsh on your skin and this oil was soothing to you. It's sort of like the ancient equivalent of chapstick. And you needed it because you were chafing. Everything felt hot. Everything was blistering or ready to blister. And David says that's what, what loving correction does is it pours oil over our blistering hearts. It soothes. It's, it's, it's calming. Our hearts become rough and chap. And loving correction is a balm that softens us. You keep going. You look at verse 6. This prayer against the actions of the wicked in verse seven shows the readers a preview of what becomes of those who oppose God, those who fight against the Lord. It's one of many biblical metaphors of judgment. So look, verse six, being thrown off the side of a cliff. Verse seven, the metaphor of judgment is bones scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Judgment isn't just something that's spoken of that God does in the Old Testament. The New Testament talks about it often. Jesus talks about it more than anyone. He speaks of judgment in graphic terms. It's some similar terms. He talks about one who has a millstone hung around their neck and is thrown into the sea. That's a metaphor of judgment. He speaks of fire. He speaks of torment, hell, suffering. The, the Bible doesn't hide the reality of judgment. It features it very prominently. It's, it talks about the certainty of judgment outside of Christ, that it's coming for us because we're universally guilty. That comes really to the central message of the, of the gospel. The good news isn't good news first. It's actually bad news because it makes us aware of the fact that we come into this world with a heart that's running away from God, a heart that's rebellious. We don't want to submit to God and to his word. And we might live that out in a bunch of different ways. So it doesn't necessarily take the same shape in each person's life. There might be a radical skepticism type of person, right? That's the, that might be the card-carrying sort of Darwinian, right, atheist, denying God explicitly. But then you've got practical atheism. Yeah, God exists, but he's kind of cool with me, I'm cool with him, and basically I do whatever I want. That's a practically, practical, functional atheism. And then you've got the, the religious thing, right? The veneer of religion where I do the church thing, I, I say churchy things, I know and affirm the Ten Commandments, I do nice things for people, right? I, I go to church, I say my prayers, I say things like bless her heart when, when her heart needs to be blessed, right? So there's all kinds of things that I do that have this sort of veneer of churchiosity, right? Just religiosity over it. The, the Bible though, the Bible pokes a hole in that veneer. And it says to every one of those three different individuals, all who are denying God in their own personal lives, it says you can't make things right between you and God. It's you're on really bad terms, you're actually enemies. 
And judgment comes for those who oppose God. And, and sort of religious activities, the reason that one can be the most deceptive and dangerous is because it muddies the waters. It leaves us wondering, how are we with God? And James, the New Testament writer, helps clear things up when he says, Look, faith without works is dead. Let's just be really clear. Faith without works is dead. A faith in Jesus that doesn't produce any evidence of change in our lives is a faith that is, meant, that is just mental, or it's just sentimental, but it's not real, authentic faith. Real faith in Jesus, according to the Bible, all over the Bible, begins a change. It begins a new story. It creates another you, a new you, right? God moves in on the, the heart of the sinner and starts changing us from the inside out. That's the, the message of the Bible is ultimately this. The whole Bible wants to tell you this story. God is holy, you are sinful, I am sinful, we deserve judgment. God sent Jesus to take that judgment on the cross and humble sinners all over the world who run to that Jesus and trust in him alone and follow him are saved and brought all the way home to God. That's the message of Christian faith. You believe that message from the heart, not a veneer, not an escapism so that we can just still do whatever in the world we want, but a genuine heartfelt desire to follow after Christ. You believe that message, you're home. You're saved. Salvation through faith alone. So prayer number one, hurry to help me. Prayer number two, don't let my heart turn to evil. Prayer number three, don't let me die. I love all the don't let me's in this passage. Verse eight, but my eyes look to you, Lord, my Lord. I seek refuge in you. Do not let me die. Protect me from the trap they have set for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. When we, when we think about perseverance, so often we emphasize what we need to do in order to persevere. I need to be desperate for God. Am I desperate enough for God? I, I need to fight for holy speech. I need to fight for a holy heart. I need to be teachable, right? The kinds of things we've already discussed here. And this passage upholds the value of all those things as pursuits in our lives and in our hearts. This passage also upholds something else. Another sound, right? Those, those are marks of perseverance. Those are things that David is praying for. He's asking God to get in on that, to work in those very areas. Let me put it more directly. This is in your notes. David is asking God to give him everything he needs to persevere. This passage doesn't leave perseverance entirely on your shoulders. Verse two, just look at it. Let my prayer be counted as incense. Let this be worship from the heart, not vending machine prayers. Let this be an act of worship. Evening sacrifices, verse three, set a guard over my mouth. Verse four, don't let me run toward evil. Verse five, give me a teachable heart. He's not just trying to churn it up from, from deep down inside somewhere. He's saying, give me that, I need that. Give me grace. As David closes this psalm, which is a portrait of perseverance, he shows us where he's looking. Verse eight, look at verse eight. But my eyes look to you, Lord, my Lord, don't you love how explicitly he is looking up and out? 
My eyes look to you, Lord, my Lord. And then he prays one of the most vital prayers in the whole Bible. Two words in verse nine. Protect me. The ESV translates it, keep me. We need this grace. We need God to answer that prayer because he knows, and we sing this truth so often, he knows our hearts are prone to wander. And so God doesn't, he doesn't just say, look, I'll get you in the door of faith and then it's up to you. Now I'll get you started, I'll wind it up and then you're off, right? The, the perseverance part, it's all on you. That's not what we have here. That's not what we have in scripture. The gospel is good news because it's a story of God coming near to messed up people and providing everything we need to get us home. The whole thing is provided. The forgiveness is here. The renewal is here. The perseverance itself is a part of God's grace. The scripture doesn't say in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will, will, will scream at you from the sidelines hoping that you make it. That's not what that precious verse says. What does it say? I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Sweet news that is. Look at verse 10. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. I love Derek Kidner, commentator. He remarks in this way. He says, the last line has the buoyancy worthy of the man who has slipped through many a net with the help of God and is sure that his journey is by no means over. In other words, don't take your perseverance on alone. Look to him. This is in your notes. Talk to God about your perseverance. That's what the psalmist is doing. Talk to him about your desperation or the lack thereof. Talk to him about your tongue and your heart and your trials and nets and traps that are all around you. Make these prayers your own. They're right here in the text. Hurry up and help me. Set a guard over my mouth. Don't let my heart turn to evil. Don't leave me defenseless. Protect me. Keep me. Those are prayers that he's praying. God's put those in his words for a reason. Keep me is a prayer that echoes something we learn from Jesus himself. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It echoes that truth. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Perseverance is a grace from God and we desperately need it. Some time ago, I heard on NPR, a program called This American Life and it featured a program Uh, dedicated to the theme of quitting. So that was the theme for that particular episode. And they told a story of a young woman who had what she calls an epiphany in her life. And the epiphany was basically this, that quitting is the key to happiness. And so she speaks of, quote, the euphoria of the quit. Quitting euphoria, she writes, is an incredible thing. I don't know how much you have quit, but there is an incredible charge to quitting that's like a drug. It's like being in love, kind of, except it's being in love with your decision. The story then goes on to relate how she decided to to quit her job, she quit her boyfriend, she quit 
her city, and, and that was just the start to this whole life, this whole new way of looking at life. And then she began a magazine uh, called The Quitter Quarterly, and she would write various things. And then she wrote a book called The Art of Quitting, and this is a note from the inside flap of the book, The Art of Quitting. For anyone who's ever grown bored with a partner, tired of a job, or sick of an apartment, The Art of Quitting offers wry wisdom on the unsung art of giving up. <laughs> it's filled with advice and encouragement on cutting losses, pulling up stakes, and moving on, and instructs on techniques like make a scene and burn a bridge. Quitters take chances. Quitters decide for themselves when enough is enough. As author Evan Harris counsels, patience may be a virtue, but quitting is an art. So that's, that's her outlook, right? And that outlook, which is increasingly prevalent in our society, stands in stark contrast to a word that the Bible upholds and celebrates. Perseverance. You have need of endurance. But to the writer of the Hebrews says, we need endurance. The psalm doesn't praise the, the art of quitting. It praises a life of persevering faith, looking up and out. The psalm, though, it's, it's not just commending perseverance, holding it out there. It promises you're not alone in the desire to persevere. God is with us. Look, here's, here's the reality. Sometimes, sometimes my faith feels shaky. N not... I'm not on my spiritual A game shaky, but don't let me die shaky. And that way the Psalms are finishing my sentences. They're finishing your sentences. You, you think about verses in the Bible, um, awesome verses like, like this one, which may be familiar. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is a verse meant for comfort. It's in the comfort passage, Isaiah chapter 40. It's meant for comfort, but you ever read a verse like that and come away not comforted? You ever read a verse like that and come away saying, man, it'd be nice to, to mount up once in a while. And by the way, where are these mounters? Right, where, where are the people who are just soaring like eagles in the, in the big blue sky of faith? And they're just, it just looks so easy. They're not flapping like us, you know, we're you know, trying to stay afloat. They're just soaring up there, right? Where are those people? How, what's their secret? How do you get in on that? It'd be so nice to just soar above it all. That Psalm 141 doesn't sound like he's just soaring. It sounds like he, he's trying so hard to not do a nosedive. Look, may I suggest that the sound of someone whose faith is in full flight might sound exactly like verse one. Look at verse one. Lord, I call on you, hurry to help me. <laughs> Listen to my voice when I call on you. May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. That, friends, is the person who's waiting on the Lord for strength. That's the new soaring. In a fallen world, oftentimes it feels like that. That's the sound of someone who's still in the race of faith, the sound of someone who's being preserved by the grace of God. Look, here, here's the beautiful, comforting truth. If I could lose my salvation, I would. 
I don't trust myself as far as I could throw myself. I, if I could lose my salvation, I would. This psalm is about the race of persevering faith. But don't, don't just hear the footfall. Don't just hear the footsteps of someone pounding the pavement in the race of faith without hearing the, the keys of assurance jingling in their pockets. You hear something else, it's sort of distant. It's behind this outcry of the psalmist and it's the keys of assurance jingling in their pockets as they run the race of faith. Look, here's the truth. The God who calls us to perseverance keeps us. That's the good news. He preserves our faith. <laughs> it really is that good. How crazy is that? It really is that good. We really can be that confident in his grip on us as his people. 